It's time to outlive your cubicle, the podcast that helps you get the most out of your health when you spend your day at a desk. Remember, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in our discussion should be construed as medical advice or diagnosis. If you plan to make health changes, be sure to ask your doctor. Now, here's your host, Dan Wool. I remember that it was September 13th, 2011. I left work at lunchtime. I went to the hospice. My dad was transported there the prior evening. They said it would be days or maybe a week or two before he died. We spent the afternoon there, my mom, my brother, and me, and then we left. I drove south to pick up my kids and let them know what was going on with their grandpa. And then I got the call. He had passed. Now, my dad had terminal lung cancer. He survived two years after his original diagnosis, so his death was not really a surprise. But he was my dad, and his death remains the first and, so far, the most major loss in my life. Grief is our emotion that responds to loss. It's part of our wiring. Nobody needs to tell us how to be sad or how to experience grief. We just do. And there's no timetable for grieving. Everyone is different. For the loss of a loved one, it can take months or even years to grieve. Some people never get over their loss. Others are more resilient. In Christian traditions, they usually have a mass, a burial ceremony, and a gathering or celebration in life. Oftentimes, this is in a single day or two. Uh, Jews will sit shiva for seven days. Muslims observe three days of grieving, and a widowed Muslim woman will observe four months, ten days of mourning for her husband. Hindus cremate the body in 24 hours, and then ten days later, they'll host a ceremony at the home of the deceased in order to liberate their soul for its ascent into heaven. And then I say, then what? Spiritually, all of this is wonderful. It can be cathartic, but the practical reality in our modern life is that most of us have to go back to work and get back to our lives, and few of us are ever ready. And if you've experienced a loss that close, you know that afterwards, it's like walking around with a giant hole in your sail. You're mentally numb, you are physiologically a mess, you're exhausted. And at the time it happened with my dad, I worked for a large company and I was lucky to have a really great manager who understood. He encouraged me to take all the time that I needed. I, I don't think he ever even put in my time off. And I took about a week or so before I realized I needed to go back to work. Typically, you burn up your paid time off. What do we get? Two weeks vacation at most workplaces? But what if you need more time? Looking back at my dad's death, I wonder how I ever got by or even got anything done at work. I wonder why anyone knowing my pain back then would even think that I was remotely productive. And then I think about my friend Barry Kluger, who is our guest today on Outlive Your Cubicle. In 2001, Barry experienced every parent's worst nightmare suddenly losing his only child, Erica, who died in an auto accident. Barry and I met and became friends about 12 years ago when we were both in the public relations business in Arizona. And as a heads up, you're going to hear a lot of uh, shop talk in the beginning of this podcast, uh, just by way of background and getting to know Barry. 
Uh, he is a 40-year communications executive. He served at the most senior post at MTV Networks, at USA Networks, and Prodigy Internet. He was also the owner of Kluger Media Group, an independent crisis public relations agency until he retired in 2017. He's still a writer, regular contributing columnist for the Arizona Republic, Huffington Post, and Geocentric Media. Most importantly, for the past decade, Barry has become a well-known advocate for grieving. He's partnered with another grieving dad, Kelly Farley, and they advocate for the passage of an amendment to the Family and Medical Leave Act. And this would enable unpaid time off to grieve for the death of a child. It's called the Sarah Grace Farley Kluger Act, named after the deceased children, and they're still fighting for its passage. We get into that. Barry and I also discuss the curious nature of grief in our society on this podcast. We talk about the FMLA, why it needs to change. We also get into current events such as the recent Parkland shooting, how grief manifests in the workplace, how we suppress it as human beings, and what we should and should not do when friends and coworkers lose a loved one. One thing to note on this recording is that Barry and I were outside at Scottsdale Quarter. It's an outdoor mall. I don't think it's too bad, but just as a heads up, the quiet park area we were sitting at uh, attracted a kid's play date at one point, and you also may hear some occasional traffic. Anyway, enjoy learning from my good friend, Barry Kluger. Here with Barry Kluger. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here anywhere. We're outside. It's Arizona. It's end of March. No complaints. Yeah, it is absolutely beautiful out right now. Um, how have you been? I've been good. I retired back in July for two reasons. I had a partner I didn't want to be in business with anymore. And here's the interesting thing. I've worked in the PR industry for over 40 years. Uh, I don't look it, although I am getting my eyes done in July (laughs) because I turned 65 and Medicare will pay for it. (laughs) And the interesting thing is I, having worked in the let's just call it the big leagues and coming here uh, it was a change realizing the way people think of PR how they utilize it whether they think long term etc and I realized in July I had built a pretty good career I had built if I could use the word a legacy and I said every time I get on the phone with a potential client it's a negative reinforcement that I may know a lot but these people either don't care or they can't grasp it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take my Viacom pension early. I'll take my Social Security early. And I'll continue cooking in the house, writing for this company, Geocentric, which has over 400 websites around the world. Uh, PureCity.com's like Burbank.com, uh, Scottsdale.com. Uh, I'm on Abu Dhabi.com. I'm on <laughs> Jerusalem.com. Uh, NottingHill.com. So I write a weekly column. I've been doing that for a number of years. So I'm focusing on my writing. My wife is a successful attorney, special needs attorney in Arizona. So she's fine with the idea. And one of the things you were writing about, and I wanted to ask you this, if people look you up, they're going to see uh, Rock and Ride, Confessions of an MTV Exec Turned Uber Driver. Mm -hmm. How'd that come about after you retired? 
my wife suggested it, and I read some crazy article saying for putting in just 20 hours a week, you can make 50000 a year. And I'm from New York. I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. But I kind of thought, hey, that's not bad. I like driving. I like people. I like talking. And uh, this will be good. Well, while the stories were great, the economics were not great. And I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it for the fun. And I just decided after a while it was time to uh, hang it up because of the economics. But there were great stories. The best one that I love telling is I was up by Mirabel, Mirabel, up by Desert Ridge. And I'm winding through this very, very exclusive community. And I pick up a guy. He comes to the uh, uh, back door, opens it gets in he looks in he says Barry I said Bruce he says oh my god you're driving for Uber he's CEO of a big national company that was a client of mine and he said oh so you're driving I said you know what Bruce don't feel bad for me I said when you were a client you used to call me at two o'clock in the morning or text me saying there's a story breaking tomorrow in the Wall Street Journal. Are we going to get beaten up? I said, now, I don't wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, did I leave someone in the back seat of my car? <laughs> so anyway, I, I said, it's great. I uh, retired. So he goes to sit in the front, and I said, no, I'm sorry. Passengers have to sit in the back. <laughs> so uh, we spoke, and, of course, he's doing well, but his stress level was pretty high and I just wanted to eliminate the stress level because I turned 65 in July 2018 and my health is good with the usual things that happen hernias you know, prostate cancer all these things people get and I said maybe I've got another 15 years of good traveling till I'm 80 and then life expectancy, I don't know. I'm just, I, I feel like Howard Stern sometimes who <laughs> just believes, you know, the day is coming any day. And I said also it's time to right size. We're uh, selling the house and uh, we're going to use the time to do what we enjoy most, which is traveling and for me to continue writing. And the fact is I got a call from... This have a few occasions. Guy called me, said, hey, I have this new business, uh, and I'm thinking about PR. And I said, well, you're in Miami. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to push the firm. This is what you really want to do with your business. And I can recommend some people. And he said, well, what about you? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, I'm retired. He said, what would it take to get you out of retirement? And I've never price gouged a client. I said, let's see. I like to go on these cruises. These cruises cost X. So if I amortize it over 12 months, this will pay for a cruise a year. Okay, this is what I'm charging you per month. <laughs> so uh, I have that, and I things popped up for crisis management. I just uh, handled a very big uh, crisis management of a major nonprofit, a scandal. It was a scandal, 
but it felt good to get back in the weeds. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. And we talked a little bit about the Uber part, and we talked a little bit about the PR and writing part, but let's talk about the MTV part and the PR part. How did you get started? I'd like to say it all started at a 10-watt station in Dubuque, <laughs> Iowa. I think it's in Iowa. Uh, this is really the beginning, I think, is kind of fascinating. Uh, I was had the distinction, my brother and I, three years apart of bo- being voted class clown and class chatterbox. I think it was quite an honor, considering the fact that my mother was a principal in our school district, and here she had two kids who barely graduated high school. I graduated with a C minus. And uh, my brother graduated in the lower 16th of his class. Today he's an attorney representing A-Rod in his divorce, Tiger Woods' wife, uh, living in Whitney Houston's old 7,000 square foot penthouse apartment in Miami, uh, and I went to work in showbiz, so uh, we proved everyone wrong. I was working at the college radio station, and uh, I loved radio, and I took over this coveted Sunday night talk show that for 30 years at AU, that was the coveted uh, spot. So I did that, and then I called a radio station in New York. Uh, well, l- let me go back to this. Before I transferred to American University in Washington, I heard that Frank Serpico was coming back from Holland to endorse Ramsey Clark for uh, Senate from New York. So I called a Long Island radio station. I said, hey, I heard this. You know, I'm a fan of Serpico, certainly the legend. And they said, well, if you want to go in and cover it, if you can get an interview, we'll put it on the air. So I went into the city and I got an interview and uh, they put it on the air. And then I transferred to school in Washington. They said, uh, uh, would you like to be our Washington uh, bureau chief? I said, how big's the bureau? They said, you. (laughs) I said, okay, that's a pretty heady title. So I ended up getting a uh, clearance in the uh, radio and TV congressional gallery. So I had access to the Senate and the um, uh, House. And I covered the... Uh, Watergate hearings in 1974 so and that was put on the air back in New York so that's where I kind of got my uh, uh, my expertise and on weekends I was doing uh, afternoon drive at a country radio station uh, under the name of Al Paradise (laughs) and uh, and then what happened in July 1976 friend of mine was working at the Capitol Hilton as a uh, front desk clerk and the Broadcasting Promoters Association was having their conference so I gave him a whole bunch of resumes and there was a very popular ad in the late 70s called Doer's Profile and it had a photo and it had kind of questions about one's character. Well I copied it exactly and it was called Kluger's Profile. <laughs> so he stuffed them in the mailboxes And I got a call from the guy who was head of promotion for uh, number one country, if you could believe country in New York, but number one country radio station in New York. Fast forward six weeks, I'm in New York, and I'm working as a promotion assistant at this uh, radio station. 
Uh, I was there for about five months, and then I had an opportunity to join a PR firm as an account exec, which handled a lot of uh, TV syndicators and a lot of miniseries. Uh, the Dove, something Dove, it was a Western... Um, Lonesome Dove? Lonesome Dove, yeah. And uh, so I did PR on that. And uh, interesting things, I did PR for a guy named Rex Humbard, who was one of the only legitimate uh, TV preachers around. And it was really a great experience. So I worked at the firm for four years. I ended up, one of our clients was USA Networks. So I was working on a USA Network account. They needed a head of PR. They offered me a job. I went to USA, where I stayed for four years. And then um, I heard MTV was looking for a director of PR. So I went and I interviewed, and they interviewed about 40 people. And my friend Dwight, who was head of HR, recalled one night he was sitting going through resumes. He saw my resume, and he took it and he threw it in the garbage can. And then he said, he stopped, he says, wait a second, this guy has experience in radio. Bob Pittman, who, one of the founders of MTV, is a radio guy. They may get along. So they called me for the interview. And after a couple of interviews, I uh, got the job. And I stayed there for 10 and a half years, rising to the uh, post of senior vice president uh, before I left in 1995. And I always saw myself, people said, oh, so you love music? I said, I like music, but I'm probably more of a communications guy than I am a music guy. I could do anything. Uh, crisis, sales PR, HR. And under my bailiwick was not only MTV, but VH1, Nick at Night, which became TV Land while I was there, Nickelodeon, uh, Spike, our comedy network, uh, VH1 Europe, MTV Europe, VH1 Latin America, etc. And then in May 1995, uh, my friend who was president of VH1 went over to Prodigy Internet. Uh, anyone listening to this may remember Prodigy, may not. And I went, the internet was kind of new to me, but PR was PR. So I went and got a job as senior vice president. Uh, I was there for about three years. Then we did a management buyout. We bought it from IBM and Sears, backed by Carlos Slim, who I think now is the fourth richest man in the world. He's behind Gates, um, uh, Jeff Bezos, and uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, the buyout and going public was good for all of us uh, in the sense that we call our house, which is a modest house but a nice house, the house that Prodigy built. <laughs> and we moved out to Arizona in 1999. And can I still reach you at 12345678 at prodigy.com? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. I gave free accounts to all my friends. And Prodigy was around until about, well, you know what? It's crazy. There are people, I've come across people now and then who still have a Prodigy email. 
So uh, I left, but for the next 15 years, they were comp for life. Never <laughs> paid for uh, internet access. Well, you've been well known over the past 10 years or so as a grief advocate. And you've been really doing the job to help people understand that this is a, a real and very natural condition mm -hmm. and that it's got to be felt and respected and, and, and something that, that, that can't be ignored. Can you tell us the story of how this came about? Can you tell us about your daughter, Erica? Yeah, I um, never applied for the job to be the uh, face of grief. My daughter, from my first marriage, Erica, came out to Arizona to live with us in 2000, after high school, uh, to go to college, sometimes go to college, get a job, sometimes get fired from her job. Uh, typical um, teens. She, um, she had her usual thing of parties and bad behavior, so she, I did this tough love thing, which was difficult for me. I was remarried, and when you're a divorced dad, you do anything. If Erica said, Dad, I really, I saw a really nice pony today on TV. Can I have a pony? Sure, we'll just put him in the backyard. We'll, you know, we'll buy feed for him, and uh, so we do everything. But uh, kicking her out of the house was difficult, but I also made sure she was in an apartment with some people. Uh, that I had met and she was getting her act together and she moved back to the house on uh, March 3rd uh, 2001 and uh, she got a job locally she was going to apply to go to college back to college uh, night of April 5th uh, she uh, came home and told us she had applied to ASU and was accepted we're thrilled and then uh, Friday morning, April 6th, I was out uh, playing golf with a friend of mine I had grown up with. And he had come in for the uh, Jewish holidays. So he basically knew Erica from when she was an infant. So he, uh, I decided not to wake her. I said, he'll see her tonight when uh, come home. And she, uh, she's not working today. Well, it turns out that Evidently, after we left, she got a call from work, and they said, we do need you in today. And uh, about two miles from the house, uh, on, for those who are familiar with Scottsdale, there's a bend on Pima Road near Joe Max where it makes a sharp left and a sharp right. And uh, I'm fond of saying Erica was reaching into her Kate Spade bag to get her Bobby Brown lipstick. That's when she swerved into the uh, northbound lane, uh, was T-boned, and was thrown to the back of the car. Uh, I called in about 9.30, and there were messages, and it was Scottsdale Healthcare, and they said, your daughter's been in an accident. So I called, and they said, how bad is it? They said, it's pretty bad. What they hadn't told me was she'd been dead for over an hour. But they're not going to tell a dad getting into a car um, that. So this was before 101 was completed. Uh, somehow I made it from Anthem to downtown Scottsdale in 19 minutes. And when I got there, they asked me to go sit in a room 
a doctor came in with a priest. Being Jewish, I figured something was up. <laughs> and that's when I found out that Erica had died. So it was, the day's not a blur. I remember it exactly because I've kept a journal since I was 15. Now, hopefully that will become a book someday only because of the entries. Because every time I went out on a date, I would write who I dated. I wrote about what happened <laughs> in detail. It was really uh, my social life. And also, um, I had written about my first marriage, my divorce, the feelings I was going through then. So it was a natural extension that I just kept on writing. Even when Eric had moved out, was kicked out of the house, the feelings I was having, and then certainly after her death. Um, and my former wife was coming out that weekend anyway with her husband and their two kids to kind of reconcile with Erica because it had become a strange. Erica didn't like her stepdad. There was tension. So they were coming out that weekend uh, to see Erica. And I had to call my, um, my former wife and say, I know you're coming out, but uh, not to be dramatic, but um, you're coming out for a funeral. So um, that was that. And um, I spoke at Erica's funeral. Uh, Erica's stepdad spoke. And Erica's 18-year-old friend, who she had known since she was seven, from summer camp, who had been going to ASU. And I thought it was pretty brave for an 18-year-old who... Uh, no one... Uh, I was going to say no one should have to experience mortality. Uh, as a kid growing up, and I think maybe for many of us, kids didn't die. Families stayed together for the most part. Uh, it's different now with uh, Parkland, with Sandy Hook, with, you know, everything has changed. You know, young people going off to war, which, you know, they certainly did in the 70s. Um, so it was a lot to, lot to gather. And I ended up um, getting through that time. Uh, but the key was... The day Erica died and we went back to the house, a friend of mine came to take me out for coffee. And it was actually the day after the Saturday, uh, April 7th. And we go into the local Starbucks and I see people kind of speaking in hushed voices and nodding to me and pointing to me. And I said, I called it the whisper. I said, oh my God, I've become the whisper. I'm now the guy they whisper about. Um, so I spent time over the next couple of years writing about Erica, um, speaking uh, wherever I could, anyone who wanted to hear my story. And in 2000, late 2010, there's a gentleman by the name of Kelly Farley who found me on the internet. He had lost two children, Noah and Katie. And he had read my articles about Erica. And we spoke, we did research, and we found out that under the Family Medical Leave Act, if you have a child, adopt a child, care for a sick family member, you yourself are sick, or an injured service member, you get up to 12 weeks unpaid. 
common policy is if you lose a child, you get three to five days. That's it, three to five days. It was crazy. So we began something called the Farley Kluger Initiative and, in, and started a petition to Congress. In the summer of 2011, Senator John Tester of Montana, who I had never met, never spoke to, introduced an act called the Parental Bereavement Act based on our petition and the movement. So over the years, it was in various versions. In 2012, uh, both acts in the House and Senate became known as the Sarah Grace Farley Kluger Act. Now, who's Sarah Grace? I Sarah Grace is the daughter of a gentleman named Matt Wipert. He was a constituent of Congressman Steve Israel on Long Island, who was one of the co-sponsors of the bill. Uh, Farley is, of course, known Katie Farley, uh, uh, Kelly's children, and Kluger being Erica Kluger. So that has been in several sessions of Congress, 11 and 12, 13 and 14, 15 and 16, and now 17 and 18. And it was introduced last year, and it was the first time it had bipartisan, equal bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats. Here we are, uh, end of March 2018, Bill sits in Congress, but that's Washington. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. But it's important to note in 2012, for two years, I closed my firm and I took a job as CEO of the Miss Foundation, which was a global grief organization. And my job was to kind of get them in line, build up their membership, build up their offering of support to grieving parents, grieving families. In some families, uh, grandparents raise the kids. So uh, I did that for two years. They were on a good trajectory. I left 2014. I want to add, I wrote a book in 2010 called The Life Undone. A Father's Journey Through Loss. I updated it in 2012, and then a new version came out in summer of 2017, uh, A Life Undone, A Father's Journey Through Loss Continues. And it brings everyone up to date on the bills in Congress, where they stand, my journey, the emails I got from people after Erica died. Uh, I changed some names to protect the uh, heartless and but also my wife kind of calmed me down in that sometimes people just don't know what to say yeah. and that's the biggest thing I read that uh, recently actually it's we all feel the same thing but many people don't know what to say they don't know what to say and sometimes they say stupid things they don't mean them they say things like Oh, she's in a better place. No, she's not in a better place. Her place would be down the hallway in her room, or today she'd be 35, she would be in a career, maybe married, maybe uh, uh, with children. Uh, and um, then people who whose faith is important to them say things like, well, it's God's will. Well, I remember when 
Erica died, I went to see the local rabbi here before the funeral. He said, I'm not going to tell you it's God's will. He said, because if I did, he said, you'd never step foot inside a synagogue again. Because you'd say, what kind of God takes an 18-year-old? So uh, in 2016, I was asked to keynote at the Compassionate Friends which is the largest grief organization in the world. They had their annual conference over 2,500 people. And it was here in Scottsdale. And I think the reason they asked me to keynote was because I live in Scottsdale and they knew they wouldn't have to pay for an overnight hotel. (laughs) And I invited as my guests Fred and Patty Goldman. Fred Goldman, of course, the father of Ron Goldman, Mm -hmm. who was killed along with... Nicole Brown. I know they're still searching for the killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I introduced them to Bob and Susan Levy, whose daughter was Chandra Levy, mm-hmm. uh, who disappeared and was found dead in Washington. She had worked for Congressman Gary Condit. So I got more involved with those things. Over the years, seven or eight trips to Washington, the Capitol Hill. Uh, to meet with people and this is where the experience of being a PR person comes in I know how to browbeat reporters and media to cover the story so CNN has covered it uh, every major newspaper Uh, I've been on C-SPAN I've been on Fox out there telling the story yeah, and I, w- I want to talk a little bit about that. I grew up in the schoolhouse rock era where you have, I'm just a bill, and we have this, here's how yeah. a bill becomes a law. But, yeah. you know, in 2018, we have massive lobbyists out there, and you're an individual. How do you go about that exactly? And, you know, how do you how do you move the needle in in, in 2018 with, with congresspeople? I, I've always thought this, Barry. Your, your Sarah Grace Farley Kluger Act is maybe one of the most straightforward and most sensible things I've ever heard. You're, you're asking, it's a very simple thing. You know, we have a, we have a law that covers those who are dying and we don't have a law uh, or a simple amendment that covers the survivors of that. And your bill actually, if you go read it and I'll post it in the show notes, it, it's a very short, very straightforward thing. And it's taken many years as these things do. How do you, how do you get that done? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I was looking for an email. Today, a bill was sent to the House called the Task Force on Training Grandparents to Be Better Grandparents. Here is a bill that passed the Senate in a floor vote, and now it's going to the House for consideration. And here, my bill, at its height in 2016, had 47 sponsors. Right. Unfortunately, it was 46 Democrats, one Republican. Republicans didn't want to touch it. That's why in 2017, although there were less sponsors, there's an equal amount. So you've got conservative and you've got uh, liberal people supporting it. It's um, a lot of people think, hey, you mean it's you don't get time off for this? They just can't believe it, and sometimes they uh, sign it. The big thing is we found that you have to rely on constituents. I could call a congressman from a certain town, but unless he hears from his constituents. So we're out there doing outreach. We're supported by 25 organizations so far, including MAD, including um, the Polyclass Foundation, who had been kidnapped and killed, 
Uh, the military is supporting this. And 2017 was a very strong year to get sponsors. The minute 2018 uh, came about, people in the House are running for re-election. Right. So they don't want to take a chance and do anything that may uh, rub someone the wrong way. Well, the fact is, grief doesn't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, Muslim, Catholic, Jewish, Christian, uh, white, black, yellow, brown. Uh, so I tend to think it's common sense, but I think many of the people in Washington are, they're cowards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spend more time keeping their job than doing their job. It's a no-brainer. If you ask me uh, what the uh, uh, plans are, the plans are, oh, not again, but I know come December, uh, the bill will die on December 31st. Uh, What we'll do is line up people for 2019, for the 1920 uh, session, and I think we're going to look for a change of sponsors um, some have decided not to run. Others, I think, have become a little toxic. Yeah. And so. this is in the news right now. I mean, we are, we're sitting here just a couple weeks in the wake of the, the Parkland uh, shooting in Florida. And, you know, we can debate gun control until we're blue in the face. Uh, but, you know, the practical reality is all these kids had to go back to school the next week. Mm-hmm. All of these uh, parents who lost their children had to go back to work, you know, and this is true whether it's a more random event like a school shooting or whether you have a, a, a father or mother or, or, or child with, you know, a, a deadly disease. Can we talk about the practicality a little bit of uh, how this works at work? It's clear that the parents of those killed at uh, Parkland uh, or other places that have been huge in the news will likely be told by their employers to take as much time as they need Mm -hmm. because of the horror of the tragedy and also all eyes are on these employers. Right. But that's not most people. No, that's not most people. That's a small percentage. Um, The thing is, there was a great uh, opportunity. I spoke to a pilot for one of the major airlines. which is a very American company. And um, he lost his kid on a Wednesday. His flight supervisor said, you know what? Take off, come back Monday. And I'm thinking, I don't want this guy getting in the cockpit of a plane right. four days after his kid dies. <clears throat> Parents don't want a school bus driver driving their kids to school three days after his child passes. I have a friend who's an anesthesiologist, lost a child. Gosh. She took a lot of time. She said there was no way I was going back. If they wanted to dock me pay, fine. But you don't want an anesthesiologist or a surgeon. Right. A teacher, a a law enforcement, uh, a server, a, a, a cook. Yeah. You know, any of these, you know, every person's job uh, affects us in so many ways. 
What happened with the pilot, which is interesting, is one pilot said, hey, Steve, I've got six days. Why don't you take them? Another guy said, I have four. Why don't you take them? He ended up taking off five weeks. Wow. Of, uh, but not everyone can do that. Right. And we, ju- we think it's absurd. I also, people wrote to me and said, now is the time for you to push your bill and write about your bill. And I said, no, now is not, now is not the time. These are kids who have suffered a tragedy. The parents have suffered a tragedy. I'm not going to use that tragedy to push my bill. Right. The right time will come. But it is a problem. Uh, major corporations have stepped up and have done their own policies. Amazon, uh, Apple. I've been in touch with Facebook. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg and I were um, both interviewed for an article in the Washington Post about uh, grief. And and she lost a child. She lost her husband. Her husband. Her husband. But, um, but it's, it's the effect of any death. Someone <laughs> said, well, uh, I know your bill is for children. What about spouses? And I said, you know what? Right now, uh, I, this is what I'm working on. This is what I can address. This is what I know. It's in my uh, toolbox. So it's an uphill climb. I'm not, I'm always hopeful, but I'm not optimistic about anything being done in 2018. But I'll go back to it. I'll shame all the congressional people out there, uh, many who have had uh, losses themselves. And in fact, in the Senate, one of the biggest proponents of the Senate version of the bill is Dick Durbin. Dick Durbin lost a daughter. So Over uh, Christmas, I read Joe Biden's book. And yeah. what you're saying about the pilot and others, it's so interesting because while he was, you know, uh, Bo Biden was sick and then eventually succumbed to a glioblastoma, a brain tumor, Biden is talking about how he is the point person on Iraq. And Ukraine was a huge crisis at the time. He was the point person. There was a crisis in Central America. He's the point person on all these crises. And his son dies and he's got to, you know, go back to work. And, and some of the, the great moments in the book are uh, President Obama and others around him saying, hey, take all the time you need and such. But, you know, it's a very extreme example of having this tremendous duty to one's family mm-hmm. and at the same time having a tremendous duty, in Biden's case, to his country, but, all you know, having a tremendous duty to provide for one's family in the work that we do. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the workplace. This is the really interesting thing. What people don't realize is if someone is forced to come back to work after three to five days, uh, it affects, of course, their morale and also affects their loyalty. What kind of company wouldn't give me the time off? Unpaid is what we're pushing. Yes. So there's no burden. The... uh, Office of Budget and Management, or Management and Budget, whatever it's called, they um, they scored the bill, and there it was a zero score. There is no cost to the employer. There's a cost of bringing on a temporary worker, but you don't pay all these benefits to a temporary worker. So there really is no cost. What and my, my experience has been that other people around that person tend to pick up the slack, and it, it actually, in the long run, creates more of a team and a community environment. In the it company. does. You see, it's amazing how people come together, but what it does is 
the morale, it affects the morale because it's for the person there who says, God forbid, if I ever lose someone close to me, I guess there's no way I'm getting uh, time off. And they tend to, um, it affects morale and productivity all the way down the line. And let's take the emotion out of it. Let's take it to the issue of what's good business. Company has a $60,000 a year employee. They've been there five years, 10 years. They've put money into training them, into cultivating them, into teaching them. Well, you, that, you make that person come back to work. Productivity fails. You end up firing them. So now that $60,000 employee is now $75,000. You've got to pay uh, for training, and it's just bad business. I want to transition into the fundamentals of grief. And one of the things I'm curious about is the transition between grief and then celebrating, celebrating Erica or the, the, the life of the child. How long does that process take? What do, you, what do you hear from the folks that you talk to about this issue? And how do we, how do we approach that? I have a good friend who was a, a VJ on VH1, uh, Roger Rose. And his brother, uh, Judd Rose, was an ABC mm-hmm. news correspondent. So I called uh, Roger after Erica died, and I said, how long does this grief period last? He said, well, the first couple of years, and I said, couple of years, I've got to get on with my life. I don't have a couple of years to be depressed and uh, to not function. And I was really good at helping everybody in the family get through it. And then I realized I hadn't done much for myself. Uh, And I don't mind saying I went on uh, antidepressants about six months after Erica uh, passed. And um, I've always been an upbeat, happy guy. One thing uh, I wanted to mention was also one of the things that helped me was the day after Erica died, a friend here in Scottsdale said, here's a phone number for a grief therapist. And within 24 hours, I was sitting in this guy's office. I think in a way that saved me because I had no book. There was no primer. Going to therapy was very important. And my wife, Hope, went into therapy as well, separately and together with me. And I think that's what got me through a lot and also talking to people. I would talk to anyone about Erica. Uh, I remember going to Starbucks um, a few years later uh, with my wife and our dogs, and someone said, oh, what kind of dogs are those? I said, cockapoos. They said, ah, we had a cockapoo. Uh, He died, you know what? It's like losing a child. And you know in movies, when the police say to the guy, okay, Put your gun down on the floor, lift your hands, and slowly walk away. Hope did that. She kind of dug her nails into my uh, uh, arm. And I'm not the type to confront someone or make them feel bad. Sure. But she whispered to me, she said, it's too easy. So I didn't. But I uh, went back to New York. Erica's friends, I didn't know 
many of her friends very well. Uh, I was either the guy in the driveway who would go to pick up Erica every other weekend, and I met a few of her friends. But I had been back to New York a few months after Erica died, and I had a big dinner. I took these 12 kids, young adults, out to uh, dinner, and I got to know who Erica's friends were and hear stories they had never heard. So I spent the next few years, uh, and have spent the past uh, 17 years, uh, talking about her, writing about her, uh, pushing legislation in her name. Um, I wake up and literally every morning is a good morning. But I have a scab on my arm that I pick at, and that's the Erica scab. Uh, It's not a real scab, it's uh, figurative that there's always something that reminds me. Uh, We happen to be sitting outside a candy store and I'm saying, wow, Erica loved nerds or she loved starbursts and her favorite was Skittles. When I go to the cemetery in Scottsdale, um, I take out the red ones and put them on the tombstone because those are the ones she insisted she get every time. And it's become part of my fabric. Uh, I have the sadness that since Hope and I don't have any children, I'm not gonna become a grandfather. I'm not going to you know, see my daughter you know, graduate college, get married, any of those things. This is my life, but it's a good life. And I've learned how to deal with it. And if someone, when someone says, why are you out there speaking? Why are you out writing articles? Why are you pushing legislation? I said, well, when you want something to be done, find the loudmouth Jewish PR guy from New York. (laughs) And for me, it's, I'm doing it for all of those who can't. Uh, When I spoke in 2016 at the Compassionate Friends Conference, I looked out at the crowd and I said, look at you. You're all here. There's one woman over there in the back. She lost her daughter Tuesday. Oh. And she's here at a national conference. I said, you got out of your houses. There's some people who don't. Uh, There's some people who their grief is part of their daily life. All their friends are people who have lost children too because they're most comfortable around those people. I went through the first year of, I'm not going to any weddings, I'm not going to any bar mitzvahs, I'm not going to any baptisms, any of that. But over the years, life happens, and I've become the go-to guy for friends who call me and say, someone lives in New York, and say, hey, my neighbor lost their kid, would you speak to him? And the answer is, yeah, of course. So, What does grief teach us, do you think? Grief teaches us to slow down, get a real grasp of what's important and what's not important. Now, if someone is not feeling well and has a really bad cold, of course, we feel bad for them. It's miserable. We've all had colds. Someone breaks a foot. Someone goes through surgery. Someone loses a pet. Those are all things, those are real things about grief, except for, um, I'm not sure which company it is, but there is a company out there that now is offering pet bereavement. 
as part of their policy. If you lose your pet, you get a week paid. Uh, God forbid you lose your kid. Right. So um, it teaches us to slow down, teaches us to realize that not everything is uh, so bad or not everything is so important. Uh, you look and, oh, I, we got a stain on the couch. Oh, my God, I love that, that couch. Okay, so you know what? Either we'll get the stain taken out or we'll get a new couch. This is not the thing to get crazy about. So that's really how my perspective has changed. And as I said, I talk about it to everybody. So that's also what grief has taught me. If someone can learn from something I've gone through, then in a way, and it sounds like a cliche, but Erica didn't die in vain because I've taken good stuff about her, the goodness about her, and pass it on to others. You mentioned Compassionate Friends and others. What are some organizations that might have some local ties that people could uh, seek out and get involved with? The one I know of that has the most chapters around the world is the Compassionate Friends. Every state has them. I got an email from someone who has a best friend in Amarillo who lost her teenage daughter two weeks ago. Did I have a contact? Well, it turns out there's no chapter in Amarillo. But the Austin chapter has people who drive in from Amarillo for the monthly meetings. So we just uh, uh, put them in touch. So that's one of the things I do. How can people get involved in the Sarah Grace Farley Kluger Act? If people want to get involved in the Sarah Grace Farley Kluger Act, what they can do is go to farleykluger.com, F-A-R-L-E-Y-K-L-U-G-E-R.com, send a petition to Congress, and it goes directly to their congressperson uh, and their two senators and goes to the uh, current president in the uh, White House. One can, uh, uh, one can go there and uh, get involved and make their voice heard. This is going to go on for a while. So, um, and you know what? You, you also ask how can people get involved? People can listen and just be there if people they know have lost someone. They don't have to say anything. I've told friends, hey, let's get together. You don't have to talk to me. If you want to vent, if you want to cry, if you want to say absolutely nothing, that's fine too. Just let people know they're not alone. You don't have to understand what they're going through, but people want to talk, and I think people should give them the opportunity. Well, Barry, thank you for being on the show. It's great having you. Thank you. You've just consumed another episode of Outlive Your Cubicle. You can find us on the web at cubicleclinic.com, at Cubicle Clinic on Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, you can find me, Dan Wool. That's at Dan Wool, D-A-N-W-O-O-L. If you like this episode, do us a favor, please. Review it on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you're listening. It's been a production of Cubicle Clinic LLC and Cubicle Clinic Media. Voiceover intro by DJ Dave Bernstein. Graphics by Brennan's Design. Till next time, eat well, play loud.
and outlet and cubicle. Thanks for listening.